A warm welcome to all of you, ladies and gentlemen, my dear listeners, to my podcast. Of course, my podcast is all about sharing stories from different authors across the world, from different communities. I tell the stories which have certain characteristics. Say, for example, they delineate the human frailties. But also at the same time, there is a sense of compassion. There is a sense of buoyancy. On the other hand, there is also a sense of hope. So far, I have been narrating the stories of Louis Nazar, Somerset Maugham, Gedim Apostle, and various other authors. Each of those stories. Are of marvelous quality, and you are the best judge. Those who are new to my podcast, if you listen to my stories and enjoy them, and really feel great, and feel that you have been able to have yourself uh, entertained, then that would be my greatest reward. I'm fond of telling stories. And each time I tell a story, I feel that I brought about a different kind of a world to you, and I'm sure this story, which I have chosen to tell or narrate today, the name of the story is、uh, the Diamond Necklace. I've decided to choose the story because、uh, the story has. So much twists and turns, so much entertaining. At the same time, there is a sense of buoyancy as well. Many of the times, we do a lot of things in the hope of having a better life, but often the twists and turns of fate and destiny let us down in one way or the other. So I've decided to bring this podcast to you, and hopefully, you'll enjoy the story very much, as much、uh, I would enjoy to narrate the story. So here we go, the diamond necklace. She was one of those pretty, charming young ladies, born as if through an error of destiny to a family of clerks. She had no dowry, no hopes, no means of becoming known, appreciated, loved, and married by a man neither rich nor distinguished. And she allowed herself to marry a petty clerk in the office of the Board of Education. She was simple, not being able to adorn herself, but she was unhappy, as one out of her class. For women belong to no caste, no race. Their grace, their beauty, their charm, serving them in the place of birth and family, their inborn finesse, their instinctive elegance, their 
suppleness of which there are only aristocracy, making some daughters of the people the equal of the great ladies. She suffered incessantly, finding herself bound for all delicacies and luxuries. She suffered from poverty of her apartment, the shabby walls, the worn chair, the faded steps. All these things, which other women of her station would not have noticed, tortured and angered her. The sight of the little Breton, who had made this humble home, awoke in her sad regrets and desperate dreams. She thought of quiet antechambers, with the Oriental hangings lighted by high bronze torches, and of the great footmen in short trousers, who sleep in large armchairs. Made sleepy by the heavy air, from the heating apparatus, she thought of large drawing rooms hung in old silks of graceful pieces of furniture, carrying bric-a-brac of inestimable value out of the little perfume cottage apartments, meant for five o'clock chats with most inimitable friends. Men known and sought after with attention, all women envied and desired. When she seated herself for dinner, before the round table where the tablecloth had been used for three days, opposite her husband, who uncovered the tureen and a delighted air, saying, "Oh, the good pot pie! I know nothing better." Than that, she would think of the elegant dinners of the shining silver, of the tapestries peopling the wall with ancient personages, and the rare birds in the midst of fairy forests. She thought of the exquisite food served and marvelous dishes, of the whispered calumnies listened to with the smile of a sphinx while eating. The rose-colored flesh of the trout or a chicken swing. She had neither frocks nor jewels, nothing, and she loved only those things. She felt she was made for them. She had such a desire to please, to be sought after, to be clever, and courted. She had a rich friend, a schoolmate at the convent. Whom she did not like to visit, she suffered so much when she returned, and she wept for a whole days from chagrin, from regret, from despair and disappointment. One evening, her husband returned elated, bearing in his hand a large envelope. Here he said, "Here is something for you." She quickly tore open the wrapper. And drew out a printed card, on which were inscribed these words: "The Minister of Public Instruction and Madame George Rampenier ask the honor of Monsieur and Madame Lawson's company Monday evening, January 18th, at the Minister's residence." Instead of being delighted as her husband had hoped. She threw the invitation spitefully 
upon the table, murmuring, What do you suppose I want with that? But, my dearie, I thought it would make you happy. You never go out, and this is an occasion, and a fine one. I had a great deal of trouble to get it. Everybody wishes one, and it is very select, not many are given to employees. You will see the whole official world there. She looked at him with an irritated eye and declared impatiently, What do you suppose I have to wear to such a thing as that? She had not thought of that. Stammered. What a dress you wear when we go to the theater, it seems. Very pretty to me. He was silent, stupefied in dismay. At the sight of his wife's weeping, two great tears fell from the corner of her eyes toward the corners of her mouth. He stammered, well, What is the matter? What is the matter? By a violent effort. She controlled her vexation and responded in a calm voice, wiping her mouth cheeks. Nothing. Only I have no dress and consequently I cannot go to this affair. Give you a card to some calling whose wife is better fitted than I. He was grieved, but answered, Let us see, Matilda, how much would a suitable costume cost? Something that would serve for locations, something very simple. She reflected for some seconds, making estimates, thinking of a sum that she could ask for without bringing with it an immediate refusal or a frightened exclamation from the economical clerk. Folly said in a hesitating voice, I cannot tell exactly, but it seems to me that 400 francs ought to cover it. He turned a little pale, for he had saved just this sum to buy a gun. He might be able to join some hunting parties the next summer on the plains of Nantir with some friends who went to shoot larks up there on Sunday. Nevertheless, he answered, Very well, I'll give you 400 francs, but try to have a pretty dress. The day the ball approached, and Madame Lysel seemed sad, disturbed, anxious. Nevertheless, her dress was nearly ready. Her husband said to her one evening, What is the matter with you? You have acted strangely for two or three days. And she responded, I am vexed not to have a jewel, not one stone, nothing to adorn myself with. I shall have such a poverty-laden look. I prefer not to go to the party. He replied, You can wear some natural flowers. At this season they look very cheek for ten francs you can have two or three magnificent roses. She was not convinced. No, she replied. There is nothing more humiliating than to have a shabby ear in the midst of rich woman. Then her husband cried out, How stupid we are! Go and find your friend Madame Forestier and ask her to lend you her jewels. You are well enough acquainted with her to do this. 
She uttered a cry of joy. It is true, she said. I had not thought of that. The next day, she took herself to her friend's house and related her story of justice. Madame Forestier went to her closet with the glass doors to carry a large jewel case, brought it, opened it, and said, "Choose, my dear." She saw at first some bracelets, then a collar of pearls, then a Venetian cross of gold. And jewels of admirable workmanship. She tried the jewels before the glass, hesitated, but she could neither decide to take them or leave them. Then she asked, "Have you anything more?" "Why, yes. Look for yourself. I do not know what will please you." Suddenly, she discovered. In a black satin box, a superb necklace of diamonds, and a heart. Beat fast with an immoderate desire, her hands trembled as she took them up. She placed them on her throat, against her dress, and remained in ecstasy for them. Then she asked in a hesitating voice, full of anxiety, "Could you lend me this? Only this? Why? Yes, certainly." She felt, she fell upon the neck of her friend, embraced her with passion, then went away with the treasure. The day of the ball arrived. Madame Lisle was a great success. She was the prettiest of all, elegant, gracious, smiling, full of joy. All the men noticed her, asked her name, wanted to be presented. All the members of the cabinet wished to waltz with her. The Minister of Education paid her some attention. She danced with enthusiasm, with passion, intoxicated with pleasure, thinking of nothing in triumph of her beauty, in the glory of her success, in the kind of cloud of happiness that came of all this homage, all this admiration, of all this awakened desires, and this victory. So complete and sweet to the heart of woman. She went on toward four o'clock in the morning. Her husband had been half asleep in one of the little saloons since midnight with three other gentlemen whose wives were enjoying themselves very much. He threw around her shoulders the wraps they carried for coming home. Modest garments of everyday wear whose poverty clashed with the elegance of the ball costume. She felt this and wished to hurry away, in order not to be noticed by other women who were wrapping themselves in rich furs. Lasle retained her. Wait, he said, you will catch cold out there. I'm going to call a cab. But she did not listen and descended with steps rapidly. When they were in the street, they found no carriage. They began to seek for one, hailing the coachman, whom they saw at a distance. They walked along to other scene, hopeless and shivering. Finally, they found on the dock one of those old nocturnal coots that one sees in Paris after nightfall, as if they were ashamed of their misery by the day. It took them as far as the dark door in the Martyr Street, and they went wearily up to the apartment. It was all over for her, 
and on his part remembered that he had to be at the office by ten o'clock. She moved the wraps from his shoulders before the glass for a final view of her in glory. Sadly, she uttered a cry. Her necklace was not around her neck. Her husband, already half-dressed, asked, "What's the matter?" She turned toward him excitedly. "I have, I have, I have no longer have Mother, I'm Madame Forestier's necklace." He arose in dismay. "What? How is that? It is not possible." And I looked in the folds of the dress, in the folds of the mantle, in the pockets, everywhere. They could not find it. He asked, "You are sure you still had it when we left the house?" "Yes, I felt it in the vestibule as we came out." But if you are lost in the street, we should have heard it fall. It must be in the cab. Yes, it's probable. Did you take the number? No. And you? Did you notice what it was? No. They looked at each other, utterly cast down. Finally, Lasse dressed himself again. I'm going, say, over the track, where we went on foot to see if I can find it. And he went. She remained in her evening gown, not having the force to go to bed, stressed upon the chair with all the ambition or thoughts. It was seven o'clock. Her husband returned. He had found nothing. He went to the police and to the cab offices, and put an advertisement in the newspapers, offering reward. He did everything that afforded them a suspicion of hope. She waited all day in a state of bewilderment before the frightful disaster. Lars would return that evening, his face harrowed and pale, and had discovered nothing. It will be necessary," he said, "to write to your friend that you have broken the glass of the necklace, and that you'll have it repaired, and that will give us some time to turn around." She wrote as it dictated. At the end of a week, they had lost all hope, and Lancel, older by five years, declared, "We must take measures to replace this jewel." The next day, they took the box, which had enclosed in it, to the jeweler whose name was on the inside. He consulted his books. It is not I, madam," he said, "who sold the necklace. I only furnished the casket." Then they went from jeweler to jeweler, seeking the necklace like the other one, consulting their memories. And ill both of them with chagrin and anxiety. In a shop of the Palairol, they found a chaplet of diamonds which seemed to them exactly like the one they had lost. It was valued at forty thousand francs. They could get it for thirty thousand. They begged the jeweler not to sell it for three days, and they made an arrangement by which they might return it for thirty-four thousand francs if they found. Other one before the end of February. Lasse possessed eighteen thousand francs, which his father left him. He borrowed the rest. He borrowed it, asking for a thousand francs of one, five hundred another, 
five loi of this one, three loi of that one. He gave notes made. Ruinous promises took money of usurers and the whole race of landers. He compromised his whole existence, in fact, risked his signature without even knowing whether he could make it good or not, and harassed by anxiety for the future, and by the black misery surrounded him, and by the prospect of all physical privations and the moral torture, he went to get the necklace depositing on the merchant's counter. 36,000 francs. When Madame Loisel took back the jewels to Madame Forestier, the latter said to her in a very frigid tone, You should have returned them to me sooner, for I might have needed them. She did not open the jewel box as a friend feared she would. If she should perceive the substitution, what she would think. What should she say? Would she take her? For a robber, Madame Lazuli now, knew the horrible life of necessity. She did her part, however, completely heroically. It was necessary to pay the frightful debt. She would pay it. The scent of the maid, the change their lodging, the rented some rooms under a mansard roof. She learned the heavy cares of household, the odious work of kitchen. She washed the dishes using her rosy nails upon the greasy pots and the bottoms of stew pans. She washed the soil linen, the chemises, the dishcloths, which hung on the line to dry. She took down the refuse to the streets this morning and brought up the water. Stopping at each landing to breathe, and clothed like a woman of the people, she went to the grocers and butchers and fruiters, with her basket on her arm, shopping, haggling to the last sow, her miserable money. Every month it was necessary to renew some notes, thus obtaining time to pay others. The husband worked evenings, putting the books of some merchants in order. And nights, he often did copying, at five sows a page, and this life lasted for ten years. At the end of ten years, they all restored, stored all with the interest of the usurer and the accumulated interest besides. Madame Lazel seemed old now. She had become strong, hard woman, the cruel woman of the poor household, her hair badly dressed, her scars sorry, her hands red. She spoke in a loud tone and washed floors with large pails of water. But sometimes when her husband was at office, she would seat herself before the window and think of that party of former times, of the ball where she was so beautiful and so flattered. How would it have been if she had not lost that necklace? Who knows? Who knows? How singular is life, and how full of changes, how a small thing will ruin or save one. One Sunday, as she was taking a walk in the Champs Elysee to rid herself of the cares of the week, she suddenly perceived a woman walking with a child. 
It was Madame Forrester, still young, still pretty, still a trotter. Madame Loisel was affected. Should she speak to her? Yes, Sally. Now that she had paid, she would tell her all. Why not? She approached her. Good morning, Jean. Her friend did not recognize her. And was astonished to be familiarly addressed by this common personage. She stammered. But, madam, I do not know. You must be mistaken. No, I am Matilda Loisel. Her friend uttered a cry of astonishment. Oh, my poor Matilda, how you have changed. Yes, I have had some hard tears since I saw you. And some miserable ones. And all because of you. Because of me? How's that? You recall the diamond necklace that you have loaned me to wear to the commissioner's ball? Yes, very well. Well, I lost it. How is that? Since you returned it to me. I returned another to you exactly like it. And it has taken us ten years to pay for it. You can understand that it was not easy for us who have nothing. But it is finished. And I am decently content. Madame Forrestier stopped short. She said, You say that you bought a diamond necklace to replace mine? Yes. You did not perceive it then? They were just alike. And she smiled with a proud and a simple joy. Madame Forrestier was touched and took both her hands as she replied, Oh, my poor Matilda, mine were false. They are not worth over 500 francs. Friends, listeners, ladies and gentlemen, thanks for listening. I believe you have enjoyed the story. I'll come back with another story very shortly in my next podcast. Until then, take care of yourself. Have a wonderful time.